they get their $300. It's usually around 300 bucks. They get that $300, they spend it, and then they can't necessarily pay it back. So what ends up happening is they roll it over again. They are then charged a ton more fees and they keep rolling and rolling and rolling that over till for about six months. So that $300 loan that they originally got, they ended up having to spend somewhere around $1,200. Alberto here, and this is The Pitch. The Pitch is a weekly show where I interview founders from early stage startups to analyze their businesses. We'll cover their problem, solution, potential market size, team, and more. So join me as we dig deeper in their ventures and discuss their growth potential. Today's guest is Eddie Diggia. We have known each other for a couple of years now, and I also had the pleasure to work with him. Eddie is a serial entrepreneur with expertise in digital marketing. He co-founded PubNative, a mobile publisher platform focused on native advertising for mobile apps and games. And now he's back to the builder seat with AQR Finance, a company that helps underserved working families and individuals build financial health and time wealth. Hi, Eddie. Well, welcome on the, on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. We have, we've known each other for, for a bit. Now you're building something amazing. So I'm really happy that you decided to join. And uh, yeah, uh, if you could start by telling us a bit about what you're building and what, what, what was your a moment when you were like, I need to build this now. Yeah, no worries. Uh, it's good to see you, Alberto. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, so my name is Eddie Deguia, the CEO, founder of Equal Finance. What we do is it's a financial wellness platform tool that ultimately enables working class families in the U.S. to save save money, save get better financial insights, and also improve their credit scores. So ultimately, really looking at helping kind of the working class in the states, you know, more or less, you know, kind of move upwards upwards towards the financial ladder. This aha moment came about as I mean, my parents were immigrants, so like my my mom was a, a nurse, my dad was a postman, and and, you know, they came from the Philippines. And so, you know, finances and, you know, financial education and, and, you know, what to do with money was really never top of mind. It was really just, you know, making sure that you dealt with the everyday stresses of life. And I think that happens with a lot of working class families is, you know, you just need to put food on the table and get the kids out the door. And, you know, you got to you know, deal with a number of different things. And, you know, financial literacy and understanding interest rates and interest rate calculators is probably not one of the things that you think about. And so, you know, that more or less ended us with my parents just kind of taking out, you know, kind of bad financial instruments. Like when you have to take a, you know, you have to put food on the table and then all of a sudden you're taking a 30% or 40% APR credit card to use that. That's not necessarily the best choice of doing things if, you, if you're able to, you know, save a little bit of money and be a little bit more financially kind of aware. So that's kind of why we're built. I'm, I'm building this is really, you know, kind of, you know, remembering kind of my, you know, me growing up and my parents dealing with kind of the financial stress and what that actually impacted within our family. Um, we had to make a couple of tough decisions along the way. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what drove you to build it now, right? It's like it's something that happened a while ago. You build other companies. Uh, meanwhile, how did you come to build this in this moment? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in advertising technology for like ever, uh, for about 20 years, started my career off at Google. I think, you know, I've always had this realization of consumer data is, is completely different than what I just kind of told you about like my family struggle is it's more along the lines of I've been in the advertising technology space and like the data side of consumers has been always kind of like a weird tricky subject and I think you know now it's obviously highlighted right GDPR in, in Europe and then you know the whole Zuckerberg thing in 2016 around what is it all of kind of the Cambridge Analytica stuff more or less highlighted how 
you know, advertising technologies, companies use data to more or less target you and they generate tons and tons of revenue and you know, kind of, you know, enterprise value and evaluation. And I mean, I've built and sold companies that literally do that. And so I always had that feeling that the consumer itself kind of gets the Here's what I found. I don't know what that was, but I always felt like the customer itself, you know, never really got access to actually getting a traditional financial reward. And, you know, in that in that situation, I wanted to build something where the consumer itself is actually utilizing data, their data to actually, you know, be able to 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 get real financial financial value. And so when you look at, you know, what we're building on equal, it's really we start off with providing kind of a membership reward, which is kind of a, in a structure of, you know, cash given upfront that's paid back over 36 months. So we're more or less, you know, giving giving you kind of a, a benefit of financial a financial benefit for actually the data that you're sharing. So when you come on board, we actually connect into customers' bank accounts through open banking solutions, be able to pull all your financial records into your into our platform. From there, we're able to underwrite and provide you with kind of that financial reward where you're then able to, you know, spend it on, you know, food if your car breaks down. If you're, you know, if something happened. And then on top of that, we use that financial data then to provide insights and discounts on products and services that you already currently purchase on an everyday basis. This concept of the relationship of data and the use of that data to be able to reward the consumer in a way that's just not like a, a nice little Instagram filter is something that we're building actually behind the scenes. And so that's really kind of why now? I mean, I've just been doing this for so long. I just felt like why not be able to find a way to, you know, not necessarily to be able to reward the consumer consumer for using the data that they actually own because in, in essence it's an asset and it's just an asset that most people don't know how to actually like leverage off of and we're just creating that platform for them to be able to do that mm -hmm. okay got it and so you mentioned how the product is now and like what's your current offering how do you see this evolving maybe in the next year or in general like what's the big vision behind it yeah that's a great question i mean i think you know as an early stage startup or just kind of trying to find product market fit and that's just like you're you're starting to see it i think from our perspective you know we don't have a problem with getting customers on board you know when you look at the stats in the states about 51 percent of all americans make less than thirty-five thousand dollars a year what you also have is about you know I think they say like 60% of all Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. 40% of Americans can't even deal with a $400 emergency. So access to capital and, and finances is very is something that, you know, is, is always going to be around. I think from our perspective, you know, being able to execute on that is one, one side. And then I think what we're really looking at is eventually becoming a platform that enables our customers to be able to find all the resources that they can to be able to access affordable capital. So we have a lot of people who are in fixed income situations, you know, they're not able to, you know, they might be behind on their electricity bills. There's a number of different government programs that are out there that could enable the customer to actually pay for their electricity programs. But generally speaking, these individuals don't necessarily know where to find that. And then on top of that, don't want to always go through all the paperwork that's associated to it. So can we facilitate that and make it simpler? To being able to provide kind of bundled solutions that enable our customers not only to kind of deal with the day-to-day, -day, but like maybe we can partner and provide a solution that enables them to, you know, create a CV or a, job, uh, a resume 
a lot of our customers are living in, you know, are working in surface sector jobs. They don't necessarily have a CV per se. They've been working at mom and pop, you know, diner for X number of years, but, you know, they want to be able to move on to a, a better paying job. You know, you know, having a CV is, is necessary, but they just don't know how to do that. So could we, you know, utilize, you know, technology to be able to do that, to enable them to kind of move upwards. When we really think about it, I always think about it in kind of like a the, kind of like a, a weird triangle of can we create cost savings? Can we save time? And can we actually attempt to enable them to generate income? And if we can build a product that, you know, really revolves around their life that kind of does, you know, one of the three things or all of the three things, then I think we're building the right thing. Yeah. Okay. And do you find it difficult to adapt or do you think it will be difficult to adapt to regulation around the world? Like, or actually, what's your scaling plan? Do you plan only to stay in the US? Or like the, at the global level, I feel like a lot of the things you mentioned might change a lot. So it would require a lot of tailoring. Like, tailoring. Yeah, that's good. That's, you know, look, I mean, the US is a single market. It's, it's a lot easier. I'm American, even though I live here in Berlin. It's just easier to operate. You know, I think from our perspective, I've done a fair amount of research here in Europe. In Europe, there's about, I think, 26, 27%. It was like an ECB stat that kind of more or less said that people were living at the poverty level here all within Europe. That represents a significant amount of individuals. When you look at high interest lending, it happens in Italy, Spain, Portugal, the Scandinavias, Poland, Eastern Europe, the UK, Ireland, you know, you end up seeing, you know, interest rates of, you know, upwards of, you know, 30, 40, 50%. In Poland, I think it can go up to about 500%. There is a need for capital, I think. And, you know, you know, as we start to prove out the model in the US, I think Europe is a natural extension because part of our team is actually based here within Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Talking a bit more about the users. So you mentioned like the type of users that using the product. Do you have a specific like persona of the early adopter? Yeah. So about 60% of them earning less than 35,000 a year. The majority renters, they're female. Their age is between 35, 45 years old. The highest level of education is usually around high school or maybe some college. So you're really looking at kind of, you know, the, the working class of, of the US. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do you have an indication, I mean, you know the number, can you share the number of like how many users uh, do you have right now? Yeah, we've got about 25,000. It's actually 28,000 customers who've signed up to our wait list. Um, and we're in the process of onboarding everyone into a kind of a closed beta. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the product is not yet live. You are, uh, you are just uh, like, you still have the wait list. There are not people already using it or? There are people using it. So like we've on onboarded percentage of the wait list into the, the app itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. What's your go-to-market? How do you manage to get these customers? I mean, my background in advertising just allowed me to go straight after Google. Uh, I mean, I ran Google ads and we were able to you know, really see strong, strong results. We had you know, a CAC less than three dollars. We our click to conversion rate was roughly about forty eight percent. So there was a lot of strong demand on that side. So yeah, we're pretty. We, I mean, it comes back to it. It's like if you think about it, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're looking for short term, you know, short term financing, similar to what a payday loan would be. You know, our our product is completely lights out better than any traditional financial instrument that you would get. Like you either pay 36% or you pay 0% and you know you get all these on top you know features and, and solutions. And so like I, I think that's why it's 
you know, we were able to, to really illustrate really strong numbers off the bat. Okay. But imagine there is a lot of competition in terms of space, uh, ad space, when you try to advertise there. It's probably the one of the most expensive categories to be in, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of money in this space. So like in the US payday lending space, just itself, it's about $14 billion. So there's a lot of incentivization and incentives for for there to be, you know, competition. I think from our perspective, I mean, like if you know what you're doing with Google search and, you know, other other channels, you're able to, ups, un, you know, unsurp the, you know, the incumbents in certain ways. And so that's kind of how we've been able to do it is we have, you know, very strong, you know, click-through rates, we have very strong conversion rates. And so it just enables us to do well versus our competitors on, on in those channels. Now, in terms of share of market and, and all that stuff, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of fintechs who are somewhat similar to what we do that have been successful and have raised, you know, series D money. And so when you when you really look at that, that becomes kind of like the core the core competition. And I think from our perspective, the way that we think about it is really kind of in a differentiated solution that enables us that enables a customer to really think in the lines of saving time, saving money, and generating income. And if we and I I believe that our our solution, though from a consumer's perspective, might be a little bit complex and a little bit outside of what a traditional kind of financial app would look like is, you know, kind of the route that, you know, at least we're going to kind of differentiate on. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. And uh, talking about the business model, how does it work? How do you plan to, to monetize it? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so from, from our we charge a subscription. It's a $5 a month subscription. And then um, we generate some revenue off of the coupons that we provide. Eventually, we're going to be putting like the, the reward uh, onto a, uh, a debit card where the customer can, can use it there. From there, we can make some money off the interchange. And then finally, we aggregate all the data about that consumer. So we get financial, we get demographic, Graphic, we get location, behavioral data, we anonymize it, and, um, and then we sell it off to private equity shops, hedge funds, market research firms, pretty much you name it. Okay, got it. And of all the users that signed up for the waitlist, all these people like agreed with paying this amount, like they know the cost or it's still like for now it's free, but it's going to be paid after. Yeah. So everyone on the waitlist at this point, you know, you know, has just signed up to learn more about it as they start to onboard into kind of the closed beta. That's when they'll be presented kind of, you know, the totality of the, the package. So like you as a consumer, come on board, you get, you know, your financial insights. Um, we also provide financial education, so snackable content. So think of it as not your traditional, like, okay, finance 101. It's really just TikTok, Instagram videos and, and kind of like a small little survey after the fact to coupons. And we also report report to the credit bureaus to increase your kind of your, your credit score in the States. And so, you know, when they come on board, they see kind of a robust package that they pay their subscription to. Okay. And uh, given that you are already onboarded some people, are these people that are using the product already paying? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. And do you have do you have any indication of like, uh, like what's your conversion from waiting list to paying customer? Yeah. So it's about 40%. Okay. Yeah. That's impressive. Okay, got it. Like uh, looking a bit like, I mean, I assume that's maybe not something at the top of mind right now, but like going forward, like how do you see the margin being? Is it like, does this business as a, as a really good margin or you're quite tight and you need like uh, many users to, to justify it? I mean, I think it, it comes down to some of the, the monetization structures that we have in place. Obviously, like you have cost of capital issues. So like from our side, you know, 
we we put everything on our balance sheet. That obviously is going to eventually change, and we will offshoot that to you know someone else's balance sheet. And you know, with with interest rates the way they are, at some point that cost of capital will be you know will be expensive. So that will be kind of one of the kind of key challenges that we'll kind of have to hurdle hurdle over. But over time, we we believe that the margin will will sufficiently cover cost of capital, default rates, churn rates, as you uh, as you kind of like structure and it doesn't necessarily take a huge kind of consumer group or you know a, a huge data pool of customers to actually to generate real kind of real revenue i think when when you really look at it the nice thing about this business is that you don't need a million people or 2 million or 3 million people to like be a representation of a large pool of consumers. In in our situation, unfortunately, people who make you know less than you know anywhere less than forty five thousand a year is pretty much a full represent, representation of about fifty five percent, sixty percent of the U.S. population. So when you're selling data about more or less the the, the masses, it really does enable you to, you know, you can deal with a small, small subset to be able to sell that off to third parties. And so I think that's the nice thing that we actually, we have, you know, kind of the, the ability to kind of, you know, create revenue. I would also say that because of the fact that we understand what the consumer is purchasing, you know, one side of it is we want to nudge consumers into making better financial decisions. So like if you're spending, you know, 20% of your disposable income on Starbucks on a month over month basis, maybe that's not necessarily the best, you know, solution. Maybe you should consider like, you know, going to Dunkin' Donuts, which is, you know, maybe 10% cheaper or you just brew it at home and yes, you save, you, you save the, the 20%. But at the same, so, you know, driving consumers to make better financial decisions is always, you know, a you know, a North Star for us. But at the same time, you know, we have a unique opportunity to be able to, you know, encourage them to create substitutes. And those substitutes, you know, could potentially be one side financially better for them, but at the same time could be financially better for us in, in the sense of us generating revenue. So I think there is a lot of opportunity in that regard because of the fact that we have such an intimate relationship with the, with the consumer. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So you touched briefly about, actually not briefly, but you touched about the market. So uh, how do you see the market? How do you size it? Like, did you do this exercise? Like, did you define like how, can, how big is it and how can you price yeah. So, I mean, we ultimately kind of sized it according to kind of the alternative financial service, financial services kind of space. And that's, this is like, imagine title. I don't know if you've heard of these terms like title lending, installment loans, you know, pawn loans to, uh, gosh, um, your tax refund. You can get a loan against that. Pretty much kind of like alternative, completely alternative, not the stuff that you traditionally get on like Main Street. And these are loans that have interest rates of like 20, 30% plus, you know, like just really absorbent in fees. And so like, you know, we've, we are able to kind of do industry reports to understand like how big that size is. And what we're really trying to tackle is the payday lending, installment lending space, which is traditionally APRs of about 36%. Term, the, the structure of those terms are like usually, you know, two weeks to three months. And they traditionally target working class families who are living paycheck to paycheck who need like immediate, you know, access to capital. And so like from our perspective, the, those are the, 
that's kind of the market that we've we've tied and there's tons of research because payday lending is such a big problem in the US there's been so many there's so much research around kind of that market size and how much money is actually being kind of funneled through and cycled through i mean for your audience just you're, if you're European, you probably haven't even heard of a, what a payday loan is. It's really just a loan that, you know, if you're in the States, if you're, we get paid every two weeks. So on the 15th and 30th, theoretically, of every month. And if you don't have enough cash on that on that 15th to, you know, pay rent or, you know, be able to, to you know, you know buy food, you actually, you know, go in and write, you, you more or less collateralize your paycheck against a loan. And, you know, that, that, that lender will charge you generally around 36% interest because of the fact that most of these individuals make less than 35,000 a year. So like, so they, so what ends up happening is the consumer comes in, does that, they get their $300. It's usually around 300 bucks. They get that $300, they spend it, and then they can't necessarily pay it back. So what ends up happening is they roll it over again. They are then charged a ton more fees and they keep rolling and rolling and rolling that over till for about six months. So that $300 loan that they originally got, they ended up having to spend somewhere around $1,200 just to pay it back with all fees and everything else. So it's a real big problem, especially if you're kind of like on the margins, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's why there's a lot of research and studies and papers around kind of the size of that market. And that's kind of from a simplicity's sake, why, why, why we're going after that, that space. Mm-hmm. Okay. But given your business model in this moment, the way you would size it is probably multiplying the number of potential users by this subscription fee and then adjusting for yeah. churn and exactly. the of the market and so on. Have you like seen how big that would be? Like how many people, and maybe you mentioned a number before, but how many people could be in your target market? And then if you multiply it by the subscription, how big that would be? Or Yeah, I mean, with the payday lending space has about 11 million, customers, 11 million people take a payday loan each year. So, and then if you really look at the size of kind of, you know, the, the consumer set that makes less than, you know, say, you know, 45,000 US on average, then that's, you know, almost 180, 50% of it. It's like about 80 million Americans make less than around 40,000, 40, 50,000 a year. So that's, you know, a pretty large pool of consumers that we can potentially access. But like, you know, in reality, what are we going to access? You know, our goal is really to, to combat the payday lending space because these are usually consumers who are in market looking for, for affordable cash. But as time kind of grows, we obviously want to be able to provide, you know, more kind of financial relief for our consumers. And as our, our technology gets more sophisticated, then we're going to, you know, be able to create generate a lot of value for kind of the upmarket space that would potentially not be looking for that, you know, that that immediate financial like uh, relief. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Talking about traction, what what are your key metrics that you're looking at to define whether or not this is working? You found product market fit. Yeah, no, no, it, it completely changes over time. Like, so at first it was really kind of like weightless growth. It was like, you know, is our CAC affordable and is it, you know, are we, you know, is a click to conversion rate, you know, significantly. And over time, as your business, you know, kind of changes, it becomes, you know, like, do customers repay back their, you know, the capital that we've lent back to the consumer. And so, you know, that's a, that's always a key, a key driver is making sure that whatever you give to a a consumer who's looking for, you know, capital that they pay it back in, you know, an appropriate period of time and you have the process and, and all that stuff in place. And now it's more along the lines of, you know, how do you continue to retain a customer? 
Uh, you know, you've, you've helped that particular customer at that particular moment. Will they come back? Do they come back or do they stay on after you've given them the, the first, you know, kind of the, that, that first immediate help? And so I think, you know, based off of our company kind of journey, it's really been a, a lot of, you know, understanding the customer, seeing if they're interested to making sure that the customer complies to our process. And then the last part is really delivering value to the customer so that they continue to stay back. And that's generally speaking, kind of the, the KPIs and metrics that we think about all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. And looking at competition, how do you how do you see competition? So you mentioned there are the classic uh, players in the industry and then you have some fintechs in the space. What are the axes uh, along which you are competing and how do you think you're different from the rest? Yeah, I mean, traditional financial services or alternative alternative financial services you're competing on price like you know what is the structure of of the the capital that we're you know providing to customers so you know in their situation 36 percent payable over you know, two months three months at most for us it's zero percent apr and paid over 36 months on top of that you know we provide financial education we do the credit reporting we we also provide couponing so from a financial services perspective, traditional brick and mortar to, to online, you know, online lenders, you know, like we're a completely kind of differentiated solution. From a fintech perspective, what you end up having is we're kind of similar in terms of the pricing and kind of the services. So I think what you, the way that we differentiate is really around kind of our focus. So a lot of fintechs, their, their core focus is primarily Okay, ease of use to be able to get the capital and then one or two, three resources to you know, be able to, to get you out. So for instance, one of our competitors, Dave, publicly listed company backed by Mark Cuban back early in their seed. They do cash advance, you know, and they also connect you to kind of like a on-demand kind of gig, gig economy, like job boards. And that's literally kind of what they do. Other companies, it's just, you know, more or less cash advance. I think from our perspective, it's really around the financial education and the nudging of the insights that differentiates us. So like really highlighting to you as a consumer what you're spending on, what is your behavioral patterns and actually interjecting to, you know, kind of drive you to, to at least be aware of what you're doing. Because I think that's the problem is like, you know, we're in the back. Of, I actually just did this right now. It's like I looked at my budget again and I was trying to think about, OK, what is my savings rate? You know, my, you know, am I saving you know, 25% or 40% or 0%, like you don't really think about that. You know, you, you, you think about it, but you don't really think about it. You're not really disciplined. And so like if, you know, our solution tries to create this discipline in you to think about this on a, you know, not a everyday basis, because if you did that, you'd probably be very depressed, but you know, it, you know, think about it at the times where it does make sense for you. And that's that's really kind of why how we differentiate against the fintechs that are out there. Okay, got it. And now talking about the team, who, who's in the team? And how do you think the team is the right team to build what you're building now? Yeah, I mean, when we first started, it was myself. And then I had two other, two other founders that I, or co-founders that I worked with. Um, throughout my career. One of them was a friend of mine back in DC who uh, we were kind of like the mobile ringtone space. Very weird world back then. But anyways, he, he ended up going off and creating a, a gaming company, selling it to Gree, which is a large Japanese game developer. And my, my other co-founder, 
he and I met here in Berlin. He had worked for N26 and Revolut in very senior positions. And so he, you know, kind of came on board. Yeah, I thought we 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 wanted to start it because it was kind of interesting in the sense that we all came from, you know, kind of disadvantaged, you know, families, financial financially disadvantaged families, and you know, kind of you know pulled ourselves up from that. So we all shared a very similar story. And then as the, the organization kind of grows, you start to realize, you know, you, we have a very kind of different, differentiated and diverse organization. I think that's just kind of based off of a little bit of my background. But generally speaking, we have, you know, Americans to, to Lithuanians to Ukrainians within the organization all generally have like a relationship to kind of like, you know, dealing with, you know, living, living with, you know, kind of working class kind of conditions. So we're about like 11 people. Sorry, I'm probably have gone too long on this on this question. But yeah, about 11 people, all of different kind of experiences. So we have some people from JP Morgan, uh, we have some people in graduate school, we have teachers in the organization, we have yeah people who are on the investment side, and then obviously data scientists who worked on natural language processing, just yeah, cool engineering stuff. So yeah, that's kind of the org. Okay, got it. Now, stepping out a bit of the startup itself and looking a bit more at the macro or in general, like other factors that might not be under your control. That's like, if you had to go forward like two, three years and this didn't work out, what could have been the reasons that this didn't work out? I mean, yeah, it could actually be also internal but or external. Like, what do you think are the major risks uh, you, you, you could face in the future? Look, I mean... Building a startup is hard. It's, you know, it's exciting and fun, but, you know, when you get into the weeds of it, it's really hard. Consumer finance for traditionally working class families, not the sexiest and not the easiest thing to do. If it were, then financial institutions like, you know, DKB and, you know, whatever, you know, would be on the street signing people up hand over fist and this would never be a problem. So, you know, we're, we're in a weird, unsexy space where, the consumer set is generally overlooked and you know not serviced and you know raising capital against that is always hard and so like when you look at our investors they are traditionally impact kind of based investors from village capital to acumen fund to goodwater capital and any other and you know our lead investor zeal, zeal capital they have a really high focus of you know do, you know delivering you know real revenue but at the same time illustrating impact. So I think that's one side is just capital raising and, you know, funding is always very difficult, especially now in this particular environment. I would say the other side of it is there, I mean, the macro environment makes it relatively prohibitive for consumer lending companies to survive and thrive. So look at Klarna. I mean, they went from 90 billion to now 9 billion valuation because their cost of capital has like increased significantly. A firm and a number of other kind of buy now, play later solutions as well have kind of gone into this particular this particular predicament. So, I mean, cost of capital will be a problem for us over time. And I would say, I mean, there's always just executional, executional risk. And so I think, you know, on the, on the bright side, it, on the bright side, which is really not the bright side, and I don't really consider it as a bright side, but as, a, as an employer, it's, you know, there's a lot of talent that's coming into the marketplace from, and so if you're able to, to be able to, you know, take it, take advantage of that, 
that's great. Consumer inflation is really high. And so like if you really think about it, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you really didn't have any money before, now you definitely don't have any money. And so from a consumer demand perspective, we have, you know, the a really great opportunity to be able to aggregate market share. But so I would say, you know, it really is about capital and capital usage and, you know, kind of, you know, being able to be efficient with the capital that we have. It's probably our the if we were to you know, kind of not work. That would probably be the reason why it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Perfect. Uh, now closing up, what's your funding situation? Have you already raised and uh, are you planning to raise uh, soon or? Yeah, I mean, we are, we've raised about 2.1 million. We're about to close the full round of 2.4. So we're kind of in that process of kind of closing. And so, yeah, I think you know, we've, we've been out to, it's, it's weird. I mean, we, we started this company like a year ago in reality when we got into Techstars. And so, you know, half in that process, you know, right, right after that, we were able to land our lead who were, we did a price round and then, you know, a bunch of other people came along the process and then we just went back to, to building. And then in I think November, December timeframe, we kind of went back to market to kind of close out the remainder of the round. And so that's kind of where we're at. We're just like, there's, you know, 10% of the round that needs to be closed. And we're just kind of doing that as we're building the business. Probably not the best way to, to run a process. Ideally, you want to be able to start and end at a particular time. But, you know, for, for us, we were just such a young company at the time. We needed to build product or the focus was to build as a book. And we had you know sufficient capital to do that, you know, but, you know, in hindsight, I probably would have wanted to rate run a, a simpler process where it was quicker. But I think for most pre-seed, you know, seed stage, you know, companies, you're always just collecting checks. You're always trying to, to, to bring more money in, you know, unless you're, you, you, you have like you know, a fair amount of experience and you, you have a pretty strong network, you know, you can do these rounds that close in 30 days and, you know, raise that $4 million, $5 million. But when you're early stage, you don't even have like, in our situation, we didn't have like a hard product when we were first starting. You know, we were just collecting checks and we we have great, you know, partners on board who believe in the vision that we built and what we're building. But, you know, it's just that's just kind of how it is. Okay, great. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, is there something we didn't cover you would like to add? Uh, any final comments? I no, uh, no? I, I hope that's, I, I, sorry, being American, I talk about this. I talk, I talk a long time and never truly get to the point. My girlfriend always says, just speak in short <laughs> sentences, but I think, you know, fortunately no, it's, it's a complex problem. No, it's, it's great for this type of format. Uh, it uh, was, was quite insightful. So yeah, thank you very much for, for taking the time. It was great to have you on and uh, best of luck uh, building, building AQL. Yeah. Wish you the best. Thanks. What a great chat I had with Sadie. I loved learning more about AQL. There are three reasons I think it's a great investment. First, giving people the opportunity to monetize their data is a great idea. Second, customer acquisition will be a key success factor and Eddie has deep expertise on that. Third, they have a good traction with 28,000 people waiting list and a 40% conversion. If you're an investor and would like to learn more about AQL, feel free to reach out for a detailed investment menu. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with your friend. Also, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn with any feedback or questions. Thank you for listening.